My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from the second chapter of Hebrews. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Luke, the second chapter. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. I know I've done a lot of introducing the day, starting off the sermon by referring to our lectionary calendar and the church season and rhythms and cycles and that. And maybe a good New Year's resolution would be to mix it up a little bit, get away from that for a little while. But like most good New Year's resolutions, that one can wait till January 2nd because we've got another one that I find interesting and worth explaining. It's one of these Sundays that only comes about every six years or so. 
So like when Christmas lands on a Sunday, that means that January 1st must land on a Sunday. And January 1st is one of those festival days that we're encouraged to acknowledge when they happen to land on a Sunday. It's got a set calendar date, so it doesn't always land on a Sunday, but every six years or so, depending on leap years, it does. And this one, this festival, is Holy Name, or the Name of Christ, or something like that, depending on which tradition and which hymnal you check. In any event, this festival day really focuses on that last verse in our gospel reading, what I just read. And it's exactly one verse past what we read on Christmas Eve and what is often read on Christmas Eve. And you could see why that verse gets cut off. And then you have to wait about a week to hear it because it jumps ahead about a week, eight days later, when Jesus was circumcised and named. And it's a quick verse, but it's the transition from Jesus' birth to what they would regard as the start of his childhood. And there's a lot to unpack there. So let's honor this tradition, in case we don't see it again for six years or so, and consider the name and naming of Jesus in a few ways. Like the name itself, what we say and why. The tradition referenced here in verse 21 with the waiting eight days. And then, of course, what does it mean for us? But really, for each of those ideas, we're going to break them down further. This is going to be more like a half dozen or so quick mini reflections on this one verse. Try to tap into everything a little bit to hold us over for six years. Now, the name of Jesus is an anglicized, made to sound like it's English, version of an Aramaic and or Hebrew name. And that name back then is one that we can't really quite pronounce, not too easily, because it uses a vowel sound that we don't. Instead of Yeshua, that's how it's often transliterated, they would have said something like Yeshua. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't even close. You got to pull that from the back of your throat, and I, I can't really seem to do it. Originally, uh, that first letter, the Yad, came into Greek and then Latin as an I and then worked its way into English as an I, even though it's a bit closer to a Y, and that's how we got Jesus in Greek and then from most of the languages that come from it. are We get something kind of like that for the name of Jesus. But then English is peculiar in all sorts of ways. I mean, we had this great vowel shift where how we pronounce most vowel sounds was changed, which makes it a bit different than a lot of other European languages. And then a century or two later with the printing press, so same time as the Reformation, the letter I was split into two. Its vowel form remained an I, but its consonant form split off as J. That's where the letter J comes from. And then J drifted further from its original Y to what we have today, J. Now that's all quick and grossly oversimplified, but I find it interesting. Uh, just to have some idea of why what we say is so much different than what we might read in the Hebrew or in the Greek. And there's at least two interesting bits, I think, to take away from that development over the centuries. On the, uh, the first, the earliest English translations, and this includes the first printing of the King James Version, they spelled Jesus with an I, not a J because J was sometimes a stylized sort of I, but it wasn't its own letter yet. And on the second, when Mary and Joseph named Jesus, what they said sounded only a little bit like what we say. And if you were to go back in time, 
and say you were looking for Jesus, they probably would not understand who you were referring to. In fact, you'd have just about as much luck looking for Joshua because that name ultimately shares the same root and went through the same sort of changes. And that confusion would have been made worse by the fact that Yeshua, I'm just going to say Jesus from here on out, was a pretty common name in Jesus's day. Now, next thing to consider on this special Sunday, as it only comes up every six years or so, is exactly why. Why would Mary and Joseph name Jesus in this way? Instead of, you know, naming him on the day he was born or something like this. And the answer is pretty straightforward. Jesus was Jewish. He was raised Jewish. Since the days of Abraham, boys were circumcised eight days after birth, marking them with the sign of the covenant of Abraham. These were God's people living into and according to the promises, this relationship founded in promise made between Abraham and God. Now, that idea of the males all being circumcised maybe doesn't strike us as extreme, since male circumcision is very common in the United States, though for a much different reason. And it's weirdly connected to breakfast cereal. I won't jump over there because I'm jumping around enough as it is, but there's an interesting backstory there. But for most of the world, especially the ancient world, circumcision was an extreme measure. And it joins this list of things ancient Israel was called to do, probably primarily, or at least in strong part, as to set them apart from their neighbors. Their neighbors would notice how the God of Israel called them to live in a way that was different than their idols had. You know, false idols almost always give commands that benefit the powerful, the kings, the religious elite, right? Or at least they focus on themselves. Well, the God of Israel was often calling God's people to do things that benefited other people, that benefited the, the meek and the powerless. So that was very different. And the fact that it was so different, well, talk of that would get around. The tradition also became symbolic of the fact that the child was being dedicated to God by the parents. Seven days since their birth had passed. That's that holy number suggesting the task was complete. The child was indeed completely born. Different cultural context here. It was time for their role in the world to be determined. Now, the dedication included circumcision and naming because that's what sealed the deal. The child will be raised to know, love, and fear the Lord, to be part of this community of God's people, and this is the name by which God's people will know them. That name maybe will even imply a bit about what they might be like, what they might do, how their parents are going to raise them. Now, for the sake of today, it's a helpful reminder that Jesus was born into the real world and lived a real flesh-and-bone sort of life. He wasn't some aloof spirit floating about from birth to spirit death. He had a body. He practiced traditions. He grew up like any other young boy would have in that time and place. God drew near to humanity through the incarnation, the Christmas event, Jesus taking on the flesh, so that we could say with confidence that God knows what it's like to be like us, to know hope and fear and pain and joy, and even what it's like to be raised in and find meaning through 
religious tradition and practice. So last thing to consider today then, what does any of that have to do with us? Well, the name of Jesus comes up an awful lot. In fact, we do things in the name of Jesus, particularly praying. Now, that's a holdover from an ancient idea that if you knew the name of the supernatural force, angel, demon, God, you could invoke their name and you'd have a better chance of getting some kind of response. It meant you knew something about what that force might do, that supernatural being, what sort of things they're about. And knowing Jesus' name, therefore, implies we know something about Jesus and have that sort of relationship where maybe praying in the name of Jesus has a greater effect than what? Praying without it. So Jesus has the revelation of God. Well, that means even Jesus' name reveals something about God as well. So let's break that down into two smaller parts. Because we don't just pray, but we also confess, forgive, and bless, and, and more in God's name. Now, the, we use a slightly different idea when we baptize. That's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's no coincidence that most of Christianity has adapted this practice of dedication, dedicating the child in the form of baptism. The parents make vows on behalf of their baby, usually shortly after birth, and those vows dedicate the child to God. Now, some traditions even introduce a new name for the child. Ours doesn't, but it's worth noting others do. And we read elsewhere that baptism means we are marked by the cross and sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's the language of the new covenant, the covenantal relationship we Christians live into with God through Christ. Remember, a covenantal relationship is one founded on promises. And every covenant had a mark. Abraham's mark was the circumcision, Jesus's baptism. Every covenant has that promise, what's, what's God going to do for us? Abraham's people were going to be God's people. They were going to bless the world. They were going to have many nations descended from him. And Jesus offered salvation to all people. And in that baptism gives the Holy Spirit. This valued tradition that grounded Jesus in the world right from infancy isn't exactly the same as the tradition that Jesus instituted for us, but it's awful close. You can see those parallels and those connections. And then the other bit here, a good note to end on, what does it mean for us? Well, I said knowing Jesus' name tells us something about Jesus and therefore something about God. And this goes way back. Throughout the Old Testament, people were often named by what they were going to do, the kind of person they were going to be. And if there was a major change in their relationship with God, that often came with a change in their name. Their name, if it's instituted directly by God, tells us about them. And then again, circles back to telling us Jesus' name, telling us something about the triune God. But I failed earlier to include when reflecting on that history of Jesus' name, the actual meaning of that Hebrew slash Aramaic name that I can't say. Well, back then, it's from their verb to deliver, to rescue, to save. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that, that that's why Jesus is to be named as such. Matthew says it's because he will save people from their sins. We had that two Sundays ago. Now, a bit later, Jesus will have attributed to him the title that is like it, 
Christ, that means anointed one. Anointed just means chosen by God for a particular task. And Christ also means deliverer, Messiah. Jesus Christ is the one sent by God for the task of delivering us from all that binds and oppresses us by way of saving us from our sins. That's what Jesus Christ means. The one in whose name you pray and you are blessed and forgiven and the one you were baptized into is the one whom God sent for your sake so that those heavy burdens might be made light and in time be thrown off entirely so that his name would be known to you so that you could have that particular relationship that you could invoke him in a way that is set apart. His name was set by what he would do and reveals what he has done and reveals how God seeks such a right relationship with you. And that idea that knowing the name means you might have some particular influence, you might know something about them, you might have some sort of relationship with them. God made that name known to you and available to each of us. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.